I've got a, a wonderful friend called Kelly Burrs from RSF in the US who describes parties you got making as ballet and you can describe verbally ballet as, as much as you want, but you'll never really understand what ballet is until you've seen it happen. And I think parties you got making is quite like that until you've seen it in practice and you realise that actually communities are really harsh on each other. They'll they'll want to dig into the details of that application because they'll want to know exactly what's going on and, and they'll probably have much more critique of it than a funder will because they are so close to the issues and they know what's going on and they can see the kind of conflict or the gaps or, you know, you've said you're doing this, but we know that you're not. That kind of conversation is much more grounded in expertise that funders wouldn't necessarily be able to have. And it is incredible to watch and very insightful. Hey everyone, I'm Emily Collins-Ellis, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I'm the Managing Director here at IG, and we're a London-based social impact strategy consultancy on a mission to bridge the gap between fundraisers, businesses, and philanthropists. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and we want to help them better understand each other. And so we bring you season three of What Donors Want, our fresh, dynamic, and slightly irreverent view into Major Gifts fundraising from the donor's perspective. In each episode, we'll interview a donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? This advice and more straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson Chef, the producer and host of the show. I hope this finds you all well and healthy and enjoying your week. At What Donors Want, we are continuing season three with a really great lineup of guests, which are really booked through to next year. And today's episode is all about the UK's National Lottery Community Fund, previously known as the Big Lottery Fund. I'm joined here now by my colleague, Gabby Cervera, who's going to tell you a little bit more about today's guest. Thanks, Rachel. So happy to be here on the podcast with you. So if you're a fundraiser in the UK, you'll likely be familiar with our guest. The National Lottery Community Fund is one of the largest funders in the UK and distributes over £600 million a year to communities across the country. And this is raised by players of the National Lottery itself. In the last year, 83% of their grants were under £10,000, which gives you a bit of an idea of the scale of their portfolio. We're, of course, thrilled to have Hannah Patterson, a senior portfolio manager at the fund, on the show today. We're so excited to speak with her because alongside the insight she brings into the lottery as an institution, Hannah is extremely passionate about participatory grant making. Part of her role is to iterate and test participatory approaches across the national lottery and share best practice on how to operationalize this theory for other funders across the sector. And last year, she was also the recipient of a Churchill Fellowship from the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, which enabled her to explore participatory grant making best practice in South Africa and the USA. Thanks, Gabby. So for listeners who've been following the podcast for a while, you may remember that we had a previous episode on participatory grant making when we spoke to panelists from the With and For Girls Collective earlier this year. And that was an amazing conversation. I really recommend checking out that episode if you're interested in this topic. And today's episode is, is really an extension of that conversation. So we spoke to panelists who are who are making decisions, and now we're speaking to someone who's very much a thought leader in the space and who's very, very well-versed in how to operationalize the practice of this and what different iterations of it look like. It's just, it was such a fascinating conversation. And we're very passionate about this model. It's no secret at IG that we're big advocates for power shifting approaches to philanthropy and to decision making. So this episode is really about diving into that in more detail, but also understanding what listeners, you know, fundraisers should be mindful of in this context, because it really is a different kind of ballgame. So finally, before we dive in, I of course want to send a thank you and shout out to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, whose generosity and partnership makes this all possible. And we are absolutely thrilled to announce that we have a new partner on board. Alliance Magazine is now the media partner of What Donors Want, and we couldn't be more excited. I'm sure many of you know them already, but if not, definitely head to their website, alliancemagazine.org, for lots of really interesting progressive content 
and journalism on philanthropy. I love following their work. And plus, if you want to subscribe, you can now get a 25% discount by using the code what donors want, all one word at checkout. So a big thank you again to Alliance for coming on board with us and for their generosity and partnership. We're really excited to be in this with them. All right, that's it from us for now. We will go on to the interview and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Hannah, to What Donors Want. We are so excited to have you on the show today and to dive into these really interesting and important topics. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the meat of your work at the National Lottery and and participatory grant making, we're going to start off with our usual speed round of questions. We've got six of them. Gabby and I are going to tag team. They are nothing to do with uh, (laughs) philanthropy or social impact, which is exactly as we want it. So just say the first thing that comes to your mind, and then we will go from there. Does that sound good? Perfect. This is probably the most stressful bit of the podcast. That's what everyone <laughs> says. This is the real, <laughs> this is the real test. I promise you it's harmless. Okay, question number one. What is your favorite season of the year? Definitely summer. I am a person that runs cold, so anything that involves some heat is, is, is my dream. Would you rather have 100 coffees with fundraisers or read 100 funding applications? 100 coffees with fundraisers, <laughs> without a doubt. Although I'm one of those strange people that don't do hot drinks, so I'll, I'd skip the coffee for a glass of water or an orange juice. What is your favourite go-to TV show? Historically, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which kind of shows my age. But we've just started getting into Shit's Creek, which obviously everybody has been on the bandwagon for, so we're, we're late to joining that. But yeah, that's, our, that's the thing at the moment in our house. Cooking or takeout? I really like cooking. I think it's quite relaxing and chilled and the stuff that I make tends to taste okay. Music gig or theatre performance? Oh, depends on the music in the theatre. Probably the theatre. Last question, Brittany or Christina? Brittany. Brittany all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Although I do like Christina. She's fine, but she's not Britney Spears. I completely agree. That is definitely the correct answer and the consensus among other What Donors Want guests. All right, that is it. You have officially gotten through it. Thank you. Oh, that's the hard bit out of the way. <laughs> exactly. Now it's all all smooth sailing from here. So to start us off in the real kind of main part of this podcast to really dive into your work. So listeners know by now that you are a senior portfolio manager at the National Lottery Community Fund, and you are also a passionate participatory philanthropy advocate. There's so much to dive into there, and, and we absolutely will do that on the show today. But first, before we get into that, can you just zoom out a little bit and tell listeners about your background. How did you get into the world of philanthropy and social impact to begin with? I absolutely fell into philanthropy. So I was involved in the student movement in the UK, particularly campaigning for the rights of disabled students in further and higher education. So looking at kind of like lobbying government and um, supporting disabled students to campaign for changes on their campuses with regards to kind of like access or education or social activities. So I came through kind of like the disabled people's movement. I'm a disabled person. I have kind of been involved in campaigning for that for several years. So that was kind of my background. And then ended up working after that in a kind of job that I wasn't overly happy with and was trying to move on and was applying for all sorts of things really. And then somebody sent me a job application for the National Community Fund and I started to explore kind of their strategy which is ultimately what landed me kind of really wanting the job because mm-hmm. our strategy is all around like people in the lead the idea that communities know best and that when they're empowered to create change they can thrive which fits really really closely with the disabled people's movement and the values that I'd grown up with that kind of concept and idea about nothing about us without us from the disabled people's movement and I thought that kind of matched really, really well with that. So ended up working for the lottery. I started as a policy and learning manager. So looking at kind of what was happening in a specific location. So I'm based in Manchester in the UK. So I was looking predominantly at kind of like things happening in Greater Manchester and Cheshire and Warrington and understanding in that space what was going on, policy changes, policy landscapes. And then eventually moved into the team that I work in now, which 
started to explore innovative approaches to funding was kind of the area of work that I was looking at um, and through that kind of ended up falling into party history grant making a little way because I was originally tasked with looking at leadership and what the funds approach to leadership could be and made recommendations around kind of like digital leadership and trustee and succession planning for for organizations but the bit that was really interesting for me was how do we support civil society leadership to better reflect civil society and why is there a difference in those two things Um, Mm -hmm. and why do leaders often talk in a certain way and look a certain way and actually we don't see that that kind of variety of leadership coming through and that led me to participate grant making amazing that's well, really that cool. That's like an amazing story. I, I don't think you actually fell into it too much. Too much. <laughs> something that that you identified with, which is, with, uh, which is amazing. So, as you've told us, you currently work at the National Lottery Community Fund, which is one of the largest funders in the UK. To set the context and bring listeners up to speed who might not be familiar, can you tell us about the work of the fund more broadly? What causes does the fund focus on? What is the fund's general approach to grant making? Just a bit more on that. Yeah, so in the UK, when you play the lottery, some of that money goes towards good causes. And we are one of the distributors that enables that to happen. There are 12 distributors across the UK. So the National Lottery Community Fund is one, but you've also got kind of Heritage Lottery, Arts Council, Sport England. So there's a couple of different foundations and grant makers who distribute that money we're the largest distributor of that part of money and we fund community work so we fund everything that enables communities to create positive change for themselves and so it could be projects on local sports clubs or multiple complex needs or aging or mental health or disability the range is absolutely massive and as long as it's communities coming together and looking at kind of the solutions for the issues that they're facing that's what we fund the majority of our funding goes out in really small grants so we have kind of three core products that we provide they're open on a rolling basis so awards for all which is less than ten thousand pounds reaching communities which is above ten thousand pounds and partnerships when two um, or more organizations come in for funding together and those programs are open and rolling um, and fund across a huge range of things and then we have other extra programs that kind of go alongside those core approaches so there's always stuff open there's always information on what those are on our website and so there's a complete array of different things that you can come in for funding yeah fundraisers always something coming up of course the fund is a non-departmental public body so what does this kind of structure mean for the funds grant making operations and governance Our money doesn't come from an investment. It doesn't come from a foundation or a family or a business or a public. It comes from the public. The money is public money. So therefore, we're in a weird position because we're not a weird position, just a very different position to other foundations because we're regulated by government. The way that we have to spend our money needs to match government regulations and controls around how public money is spent. So that means that all of our foundation decisions and grant making decisions have to go through specific due diligence processes, things like fraud checks to make sure that's in line with government guidelines. But it also means that all the decisions that we make, we are accountable to Parliament. So at any point, Parliament can question our organisation and what we've spent the money on and our CEO or Nostrick or is is the accounting officer and she is accountable to parliament for those decisions so it means that all this all the stuff that we fund goes through quite a regulated process to make sure that is the case obviously with that we're looking at risk with regards to the amount of money that we take so our due diligence approaches for a grant less than ten thousand are smaller than our due diligence approaches for a grant of 200 300 2 million they should be all proportionate to the amount of money that that we're giving out. Um, So it it is slightly different. And there's slightly different ways that we can do participatory grant making in that. I don't know if this is helpful for me to go into now. Yeah, no, it it definitely is. I think, well, we have many, many questions about uh, about how, no, no, it's it's great. It's a a really good segue. But I think before we dive too much into the specifics of how you approach participatory grant making within the lottery. I just want to zoom out quickly and dive into the theory of it a little bit more because it's a very 
popular buzzword and, and kind of model in the sector, especially now more than ever, which is fantastic. And you are such a passionate advocate for it. And, and we very much are as well. We're very much on on the same team at IG and really look to bring in, whether it's participatory philanthropy or other power shifting models into the advice that we give our clients because we really believe in it. But what I do notice is that when something is a buzzword that a lot of people can talk about it without understanding what it actually means. And so for some listeners who might not be as familiar with participatory grant making and philanthropy, could you just start from the very beginning and and break it down to the basics for them? What exactly is participatory grant making? There's some really interesting discussions about what participatory grant making is. There is an incredible report that was written by Grantcraft, by Candid, called Deciding Together, Shifting Power and Resources Through Participatory Grant Making. It's an incredibly helpful guide. It's just very nicely written as well. There are beautiful illustrations and cartoons. It's not, I mean, there is a lot of words, but it doesn't feel like a hefty report that you've got to get through, which is always my preference for, for a report that you've got to read. Definitely. Um, And they collaboratively wrote that. So they took a participatory approach to how they created that guide. It involved over 50 participatory grant making organisations or foundations that were using participatory grant making. And between them, they developed a definition of participatory grant making. So they define participatory grant making as seeding decision making power about funding, including the strategy and criteria behind those decisions to the very communities that funders aim to serve. There's lots of organisations that kind of like use that definition. There's lots of organisations that struggle with that definition because it might not match their approaches. But I think for most people working in participatory grant making, that is where you're seeking to get to. And you're always looking to seed as much power as possible down to communities. So it's quite an interesting approach. I think for us, we've kind of like really taken a definition that kind of embodies different aspects of it so it kind of it's a values-based approach it's about the process itself it's about nothing about us without us it's about communities creating decisions for themselves about what works for them and it's aiming to shift power in grant making decisions from foundation staff to people and communities most affected by social issues so that's kind of like a bit of a one-liner definition but also padding it out a little bit is it's it's more than just this is a way of getting money to communities. It's about this is a learning process and it's a values-based approach to those decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just a decision, yes or no. It's about how do communities learn from this process? It's about how do they learn from each other? How do they create relationships and networks and an understanding of of a grant-making process? And it's about that in a in a very interesting and dynamic way so there's lots of different ways of doing participatory grant making and I think sometimes the trap that we fall into is thinking that participatory budgeting is participatory grant making because it is the most commonly used method of participatory grant making so participatory budgeting is often called community votes or kind of dragon den type style events where somebody comes up and pitches numerous projects and then the community can vote for the the winners mm-hmm. or the people that receive that funding. But actually, participatory grant making can happen in lots of different ways. That's just one way of doing it. But because it's the most common, it's often seen as the default position yeah. for participatory grant making. That's really interesting. It's And just as you say, because that model, that budgeting model, isn't necessarily strategic. It's It's kind of a majority vote on some predefined options. I really love that distinction. And I think just as you said, it's really about integrity and it's about organizations who preach social impact and social justice values, bringing that into their own models and and challenging themselves as well as the stakeholders that they serve, which is absolutely critical. I'm wondering as well, before we get into the, the national lottery and your work there, do you have any favorite best practice examples across the sector of organizations that are doing participatory work that you absolutely love and want to shout out? Yeah, there's absolutely loads of them, which I think is really important to note because I think people think this is quite a niche thing, but there's literally there's hundreds of organizations working in this way in this space and you're not on your own if you're looking at it. And so I think the ones that I'm really particularly impressed by, Disability Rights is always one that that is is championed. They're an incredible funder. They're based in Boston, but they fund across the global south. It's a disabled people organization. They kind of like are making decisions about the grants that they make. I particularly like the way that they go about their monitoring and evaluation and the use of reflective learning journals rather than a kind of like written report 
So mm-hmm. it enables kind of unseen consequences to come to light and for changes to be made about what a program is looking at or what capacity support or funder plus they can provide to their grant holders through those reflective journals. Camden Giving in the UK is a really good yeah. example. Particularly, I think the thing that they do very, very well led by Cadra is their kind of like support package that they provide for their decision makers. They're not just saying come along and make a decision. Cadra works very, very hard with the decision makers to kind of like train them up, support them through that process, help them understand what their role is, what the parameters of the work is. And that often can help you make a much more strategic decision about what funding and what grants you're making. So they're particularly good. The Edge Fund in the UK are an incredible participatory funder. Really, really interesting, really good at kind of like campaigning organisations and organisations that would normally fall through the gaps of foundations like myself, where campaigning is a difficult or tricky issue to cover. So they're a really, really interesting funder. And the other foundation in South Africa, which fund LGBTQI issues, so lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, queer and intersex issues in the 13 southern countries. And they use a participatory approach where they develop a peer review panel who assess their grants and make recommendations for them to be funded. And they do a really, really interesting way of systematically making decisions in the way that they train and set the parameters of what the grant holders are looking at. So with participatory grant making, it's not necessarily about coming and fighting for the project that you like the best. It's about a deliberative discussion about actually what what meets the priorities of what we're trying to do with this funding. And for the other foundation, it's not about service delivery. It's about changing the lives of LGBTQI people in in southern countries. So some of that is around like legislative challenges in certain Mm -hmm. countries. It's about like working with and within churches to change views. It's about supporting families to understand and navigate kind of situations in those spaces. And the way that they frame their decision making enables that to happen. So it's a much more systematic kind of change approach or um, strategic thinking. Mm -hmm. And they also run a Kapano, which translates as a gathering to discuss a social issue where they bring 250 people together and basically use it as a discussion, training, exploration, relationship building space that enables the grant holders to improve the applications that they put in it trains up their peer reviewers, their their applicants, their grant holders, their peers, their trustees to really understand the issue because they've had four days together really discussing and kind of getting into the depth and the detail and challenging each other. So it's a really, really good way of kind of doing that whole cycle of grant making. Wow. There are a few, there are loads more. I could go on (laughs) and on and on. (laughs) An incredible answer. We've had the privilege of working with many of them. And as you say, it's so important to bring this from a niche issue into a collective and and a mainstream, not an issue, I should say, a model. Because you're right, more people are doing it than many fundraisers might assume and that many other funders might assume. And it's important to normalize that. It's very cool. And I really like that you brought up that it's about discussion, but a strategic discussion is not what I think I like best or what's my favorite, what's my favorite thing to do, but it's really about upskilling those decision makers and giving them the tools they need to to make up decisions. So that's fantastic. So we know there's really great examples of participatory grant making out there, but now let's focus a bit more on the national lottery. So you've been a huge advocate for this within the National Lottery, and you're leading, as we hear, a feasibility study within the organization. So what does that really entail and how how's that going? It's going well. It's a big beast, as anybody who has had anything to do with the lottery will know. <laughs> we are a large funder with lots of staff across the whole of the country. We are really local, so our staff are based in the localities that they work. We have offices across 10 different places in the UK. So it's a bit, a bit of a beast to kind of get all of those people to understand what is happening, what we're doing, how we're doing it. So the way that we are kind of like approaching it is to, to work out actually what does work and what doesn't work for the lottery, like what we can and can't do. As I mentioned before, because of the governance structure, we're a different kettle of fish to a lot of other foundations. There are rules and regulations that we have to abide by that might not be eligible or applicable to other foundations. And so kind of trying to navigate all of that. We've got little pilots that are going to be happening across the whole of the UK. Some of those have started. Some of those are kind of in design process. And I'll be kind of like understanding and exploring kind of 
those different models, seeing what works, what doesn't work, what are the implications of this, like what are the knock-on impacts for communities, does this increase the amount of money and funding that we can put in, say, a geographical area or a thematic area, does this help us understand stuff, does this improve the way that our staff make decisions does this improve the sector and does it help the sector become more sustainable as they start to see funding decisions from the other side and they start to see oh that makes a good application or I won't do that in an application that I'm putting in does it enable them to play the game a little bit more so we're starting to kind of explore what that looks like with lots of different models of participatory grant making so we had the Phoenix Fund launch a couple of months ago, which is a collaborative pot of funding, £1.4 million for Black, Asian, uh, minority, ethnic-led groups. And we're doing that collaboratively with the sector. And, and, and we're looking at how do we kind of like make those decisions collaboratively. We've got the Leaders of Lived Experience programme, which is will have come to a close. And we'll be kind of starting to explore and sift through those applications. But again, that entire programme was designed by lived experience leaders lived experience leaders will be making the decisions on what grants are recommended. So there's different ways that we're doing it across the fund and we're kind of exploring what that could and can't be. Part of my work is trying to be the linchpin to hold that all together, to share and network that information and guidance, openly blogging and talking about kind of like what's going well, what's going right, what can and can't we do, how are we working through our governance structures. So a lot of the stuff that I've been doing recently is kind of trying to explore actually what are the parameters in which we're working with how can we be really really clear and transparent with ourselves with our staff with our applicants but also with other funders so that if other people are looking at this participatory approach they know why we've made the decisions that we've made and why we've done things in different ways because ultimately we have regulations that others might not need to abide by they might be able to go further they should be pushing themselves more they shouldn't just use our work as a kind of framework for ways of doing things because I think other foundations will have more flex ability and more ability to push themselves to be kind of as close to communities as possible so yeah that's kind of where we're at it's exciting it sounds very exciting I think it's it's such a huge and transformative project I love the amount of data and knowledge and learning in in all of that and really the fact that you're able to share with that with other organizations and want to you know push the sector forward is really impressive. So it's so nice to hear about that. Okay, quick one. Has there been anything surprising during this process? I suppose the surprising stuff has been really like challenging my own perceptions about what is and isn't blockers for things. Because I think being in these conversations and like lots of people saying, you know, my board is really difficult. They don't want to give up power. Like I can't get them to decide. But actually without necessarily talking to the board about what the issues are and then finding out the issues that they have are not necessarily with devolving power to communities. The issue is with, well, actually, you know, can our grant management system support this? Or how are we making sure that this is still going through our due diligence? Or is this legitimate for us to say we're doing participatory grant making because actually we still have to do all of our due diligence? We still have to have a sign-off process. Like, where do we sit in this process? Like, how, how are we honest and transparent? How do we work in the open? So that's been really interesting is like how do you move away from your own assumptions and look at actually what what people are what the blockers are and often they're very different from the ones that you assume will be in place which has been really really good you've spoken a bit about boards and boards are always uh, one of those big topics of discussion i do we know that with uh, working with our clients but how easy has it been for you to get buy-in for participatory grant making within you know a, a large structure and a large organization I've been really lucky because our strategic framework is around people in the lead we've got a fund-wide acknowledgement that communities thrive when they when they can create solutions for themselves and empower themselves to to kind of be at the forefront of what those solutions should be we've had lots of drive to kind of embed co-production in the way that we work and the way that we develop our programs and so ultimately like this doesn't seem that much of a further stretch to the work that we're doing so I'm really really lucky and I know that there's lots of other foundations and organizations who 
don't necessarily have that kind of like vision and direction from their senior management team. So they might be kind of, this might be completely new to people. I think that's what's made it much easier for me to kind of do this work is that I've got kind of like support and backing and and buy-in from lots of different places in the organisation. And I think what's really interesting is as you start to have conversations with people, lots of people in my organisation are like, well, that makes total sense. Like, this surely is just the next iteration of what we're trying to do. Like, of course, this is the way to go. Whereas I think if you haven't seen participatory grant making in place or you're not at that level or you have quite a traditional model of, you know, a family reading applications that have been presented by staff and making a decision, that this is very different and is like has the potential to go tits up and you know the potential that you're you're as a decision maker making assumptions about communities and what they would make decisions on and you know you know they're going to make the wrong decision and actually think questioning like well actually who's defining wrong and who gets to choose what is wrong and right as a decision but I've got a, a wonderful friend called Kelly Burrs from RSF in the US who describes parties you got making as ballet and you can describe verbally ballet as, as much as you want, but you'll never really understand what ballet is until you've seen it happen. And I think parties you got making is quite like that until you've seen it in practice and you realise that actually communities are really harsh on each other. They'll, they'll want to dig into the details of that application because they'll want to know exactly what's going on and, and they'll probably have much more critique of it than a funder will because they are so close to the issues and they know what's going on and they can see the kind of conflict or the gaps or, you know, you've said you're doing this, but we know that you're not. That kind of conversation is much more grounded in expertise that funders wouldn't necessarily be able to have. And it is incredible to watch and very insightful. Yeah. Completely. I, I love that ballet metaphor. Definitely it's going not to be, mine. I can't take credit for it. <laughs> I definitely want to use that and I'll give I'll give credit. It's you're absolutely right. We've done a lot of work with the With and Four Girls Collective and we had them on the show earlier in the year with their panelists. And that's exactly what they said too. You know, there's there's no one who's more strategic and plugged into the issues and thoughtful with their evaluation than adolescent girls, you know, evaluating projects within their own world and, and ecosystem. It was amazing. And it's really interesting to hear you speak to some of the blockers. So, it, it, I mean, fantastic to hear that that your board and that the organization found this model as a natural extension of the work and values that you already have. But you mentioned things like engaging boards in more traditional philanthropic structures or having your grant management system not actually be kind of in tune or aligned with a participatory model or the due diligence framework, which are all very valid points. I mean, it's important to discuss the theory, but when a funder actually wants to sit down and advocate for this kind of model within their organization, they have to address some of those operational challenges and provide solutions. So I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that for funders or whether they're a, you know, a family member within their family board or a program officer within their foundation. If you are interested in this model and in, in inviting participation in, in some form or another into your grant making decisions, where would you advise them to begin from an operational perspective? And how, how would you advise them to navigate some of these common blockers to success? The first thing you should do is to really understand what's the driver for you using participatory grant making because there's loads of different reasons why you would use models of participatory grant making so for example like community vote stuff and participatory budgeting is normally used as a way of civic engagement it's not necessarily about passing power to communities it's about communities coming and being active in a vote seeing what's out there We'll often use community votes if there's an area that we're not able to put funding in. So we've got a space where we're not getting applications from. Community votes is a great way for us to meet communities, to brand the room, to get to know people, to say like all of these organisations are up for funding. Do you want to have a further conversation with us about extra funding? That's not necessarily, the driver isn't necessarily about communities making decisions. That's a different driver. Whereas if you've got kind of like an organisation that's wanting to use participatory grant making to say support the equity ambitions and looking at actually removing a bias of a foundation staff or a family by providing communities with the decisions about that grant that's a different driver and it might need a different model of parties through grant making so really understanding what that is is a first point I think recognizing like what you have 
resourcing wise so one of the questions that often comes up with this stuff is participatory grant making takes longer than traditional grant making um, but I don't think there's any research that says that's the case that's a hunch and intuition and I think it's based on the fact that we don't know how long traditional grant making takes nobody's measured that and we don't know what models we're using so participatory budgeting mm-hmm. might take a lot of time for one staff member to put on an event but actually is that less time than a staff member doing 50 hours worth of assessment on like three papers those questions need to be unpicked and explored to understand actually what is the resource it takes to do traditional grant making in the way that you're doing it now what's the difference in this way I kind of think if you are designing a participatory approach you can work to the parameters that you've got so if you know you've got a timeline and this number of staff as with all grant making you can adapt your processes to fit that and I think there's different ways of doing that in different foundations we're in a very different position because all of our grant programs are open we do not solicit applications from anyone so at any point we can have you know so so I'm just watching at the moment we're about to close our leaders with lived experience program as we speak and I'm getting the numbers through about how many applications we're getting 660 700 800 that's a lot Mm. to manage and the resource that it will take to to reduce that down to a manageable size is much more than if you're a small family foundation who's soliciting 15 applications for something so the Mm. resourcing question is one that I always get asked about and I would always push back on like it doesn't have to be more than traditional grant making or do you actually know how much it takes you to do this like it's just a different way of working your role changes you become a facilitator or an event manager or a conflict navigator or a community connector rather than somebody who assesses a written piece of work and makes Mm -hmm. a critical analysis on that or looks at a budget the role changes and shifts and therefore like how do you measure relationship building with a community and the trust that you've built so it's that one's quite interesting but comes up a lot get asked a lot about time and money is there ever an instance where a funder should not use participatory grant making and how should they make that decision yeah I think I think there are lots of times when you shouldn't use participatory grant making the main one being when you're not using participatory grant making I think it is really fundamental for funders to acknowledge that often we see bringing communities in as a favor to those communities you know we've Mm -hmm. let them in the room they can see behind the curtain they can see how it's done and I don't think that's the case I think ultimately we are asking for favors from community members if we're not transparent about where power lies and who has decisions and what decisions are being made if we invite them in and do consultation rather than decision making all of that ultimately leads to people being really annoyed because you're wasting their time and they've got better things to be doing with it it doesn't create the relationship or the the trust that you're seeking to build through that so I think that's when it absolutely shouldn't be used Mm -hmm. and there are maybe some other examples of stuff where like you might need really really specific knowledge so kind of like if you're looking at medical research like actually who should make the decisions about that should it be community members or should it be experts or should it be foundation staff do your foundation staff have the expertise to do this or should they be passing those decisions down to medical professionals Mm -hmm. and so there's a couple of examples we often also get the example of urgent funding so like really quick 24-hour out the door decisions on funding and actually how do you engage communities in that decision and expect that much of them in such a short amount of time but I think there's different ways of doing that there's ways of bringing them into more kind of like strategic philanthropic conversations about actually what are the parameters like how do we design what this program is and the eligibility of it how do you get input in that point rather than having to make the decisions although Mm -hmm. Camden Given have done all of their COVID emergency funding through a participatory approach so it is completely possible. Yeah, we get asked that question a lot too. And another question we get asked that I I want to ask you is sometimes we have people in our network or clients who say, okay, you know, I I get it. I get why this is important, why this is equitable and this is the way forward. However, the work that I fund is focused on children or the environment or animals or some sort of stakeholder group that doesn't feel accessible or straightforward for that funder to include in a decision-making process. I'm wondering, what would you say to them? I would say for the young people that you should listen to the podcast with the Within Four Girls Collective and and learn that young people are probably absolutely as intelligent and articulate and completely able to make decisions as we are, if not better, because Mm -hmm. they're not constrained by growing up and getting tired by life. 
So I think the young people want like there's different ways of doing engagement. And I think part of the reason that you get asked that question is because we think about bringing people into the funding decisions that we make without redesigning how those funding decisions could be made. So we mm-hmm. we imagine bringing in young people to a board where everybody sits around with 500 papers and they've read all the finance things, and they've read all the reports and the meeting is very long and very dull and we discuss it in detail and blah, blah, blah. Whereas actually if you think about decision making in a completely different way and say, why are we doing it like this? Is there a reason? Or is this just because all foundations have done this since the beginning of philanthropy? Um, Can we change the way that we make decisions? Can we think about that more creatively? Can we use our imaginations and think about different ways of doing it? So with the Leaders with Lived Experience programme, we didn't have a table in the room. We had people moving about. We had post-it notes with application names on the floor. People were moving towards the ones that they wanted to fund. It was a moving conversation rather than a static one. Um, And I think asking and questioning like why why are we trying to fit people into a way that doesn't necessarily work for us as foundation staff let alone exactly I was about to say um and I think (laughs) the animal and the environment stuff there's probably a question about like there is human elements to all of those like Mm -hmm. who is in the room and if it's not necessarily about like animals making a decision about their application forms it's about what knowledge and information do we need and maybe that isn't a participatory approach maybe that's looking at the diversity overall of your decision makers that doesn't necessarily have to be a participatory approach participatory grant making is a great way to achieve that but you should be looking actually who is missing from these conversations what don't we know who isn't here do we need to reinvent the table how do we get to that point so I think there's probably different answers for those those ones. I love that. I think we're very aligned on our answer too. We give a similar one, but just as you say, the decision-making processes in traditional institutions aren't that exciting most of the time. You know, most board members I know would like to shake things up. They would like to have post-its on a wall and have existential conversations and really get to the meat of of the impact they're trying to create. So this is such a cool way to inject some energy and kind of turn that process on its head and, and build it up again from where we actually want it to be. And even from a fundraiser perspective, as a former fundraiser myself, bringing a bit of creativity into the way that you present, you know, the program that you're trying to fundraise for, that could be also quite fun. So speaking of fundraisers, we know that the listeners of this podcast are mostly fundraisers and non-for-profit leaders. A lot of the advice that guests give on this show is about building relationships with donors. So all of this might be called into question when thinking about participatory grant making because the people making decisions now aren't the donors, right? They're the peers. In this context, what advice do you have for fundraisers out there who are seeking support from a participatory fund beyond being creative? I think it's it's a really fascinating question, one that probably needs a bit more digging into. I think there's probably different answers depending on the type of participatory grant making that you're doing. So like community voting is a different approach to kind of like crowdfunding, which is a different approach to a kind of a deliberative discussion. I think part of the beauty of participatory grant making, particularly those deliberative discussions where you're coming together with a group of people, in order to make the process as, as, as successful as possible. Because remember, it's about the process. It's about learning about grant making. It's about recognising, like, actually, you know, what is good and what is bad, that you need to come into those discussions and those deliberations not with a will to win, with a will to come out with consensus about what those decision-making things are and seeing the process as valuable to your organisation as the coming out with a check at the end of it, which is possibly counterintuitive if you've got targets to meet or you're struggling with that but ultimately if you can be part of a process like this and you can see like a range of other people's applications to funders that is really really helpful it's like seeing the interview from the other side I think there's probably challenges to funders and to fundraisers around like what you should be asking for to be part of those spaces and that it's not an assumption that you will drop all of your work to turn up and that funders should be compensating people for their time if they're asking them to come and do two days of decision making that's not just something that you take off so I think there's probably that conversation to be had but it is an incredible way to see funders as people because actually you're seeing them outside of 
maybe a traditional board meeting, you're seeing them in a much more creative space and a much more discussive space, but also the role of a funder is different. So we become facilitators rather than decision makers. So there's an opportunity to see a kind of much more personalised side to, to funders, which might help you understand kind of the process moving forward. Um, different funders work in different ways. So like uh, as the lottery, we have some very few participatory grant making programs but then the rest of our funding is not given out that way but it's a really good way of just like understanding who we are as people and putting a face to that and maybe asking for names and contacts for kind of your local funding officers whereas there's other foundations or other organizations that fund purely through a participatory lens so it's not necessarily about getting that contact so that you can get in the door somewhere else it's about actually all of that all of the decisions are made in this way and through this process the role changes then as a fundraiser to actually you become the decision maker which is a completely different kettle of fish and a different way of kind of working with those organizations so I suppose it depends on the on the method of parties you are making and the type of funder that you're going to be working with. Definitely. And it, it feels even that it could be even more rewarding, right? Working as a fundraiser in this context of uh, participation, getting to engage with really the end communities that you're trying to serve. A key question that I have been asked now several times by a few fundraisers in our network or clients are, you know, they're organizations who are re-granters. So they fundraise from external donors and then they re-grant to more grassroots groups within a particular cause area. And we've had a few um, organizations who are now considering having a participatory grant making style to their outgoings. So to the grants that they're making to, um, to, their, to those grassroots organizations. At the same time, they're accountable to external donors who are funding them to be able to re-grant that funding. We've had a few clients kind of struggle with that because a lot of those external donor relationships are very restricted and therefore they really need to bring their donors along a journey to build the trust so that the donors will still fund them and, and trust that re-granting in a participatory style. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for an organization in that position who's kind of stuck in the middle between navigating the traditional versus re-granting in the progressive. Yeah, it's um, it's a difficult line to tread. I think a lot of funders who really struggle with parties who grant making go down this route in order to do parties who grant making. So having an honest conversation about kind of like where your funder is at, because you might find that actually your funder is like, go for it. This is why you're giving you the money because we can't do it. You can do it. Go on with it. Or you might find that your funder is like, what? are you doing um so there's probably like an understanding of where your funder is at and that comes through the building of relationships that kind of like honest and transparent conversation about it there is a growing body of evidence that demonstrates that parties who are making is a good way of doing funding there is a smaller body of evidence that suggests traditional grant making is a good way of making decisions so there's a good basis in which to make an argument for parties who grant making I actually host a community of practice globally for participatory grant makers. So if people are kind of like trying to explore these issues or want to know more or want to be connected with other organisations who are in a similar situation where they're receiving funding and then onward granting, then we can kind of support and network those people together. I think it it does come down to the relationship though and understanding actually is there a blocker to this and if the blocker like what the blocker actually is because it might be. So for example for the lottery fund we do some onward granting but it's really really difficult for us because of the legal framework we are working in because it is public money. Whoever is onward granting has to demonstrate that they have the same level of scrutiny that we would apply to our grants and that makes us doing onward granting a difficult process for anybody who's been involved in in that kind of like external delegated agreement with us because the workload to get to that point is huge because they have to demonstrate that they can do x y and z that doesn't mean we can't do it it's just a lot of work and that makes that difficult but it's understanding what those parameters are and those parameters are the parameters that are set by us from DCMS and from government rather than necessarily the will of the organisation to do it. So really understanding what is the blocker and where that's coming from is really helpful as you move forward. 100%. I think also if you're wanting to regret in a participatory style, that means you have certain values and, and the clearer you are about those values externally, then donors could self-select and you know into the kinds of ways that they support you. So being really clear about what you stand for and what you don't stand for can help manage expectations. And, and the other thing is 
people seeing it mm-hmm. once they see it in process and they they see actually this is really cool and community yeah. are really on it and like they're not making silly decisions about where money goes in fact they're probably making better decisions because they recognize the importance of this grant that often brings people along quicker than most of the things because they'll suddenly wake up and be like this is cool I want in totally and I also want to pick up on something you just mentioned that you host a community of practice so if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you about that how might they be able to do that I'm on Twitter, I predominantly tweet about parties. We've got making a disability rights. So if you're interested in any of those things, that's that's the place to be. My handle is Patterson with one T, so P-A-T-E-R-S-O-N, Hannah. You can message me through there and I can put you in touch. And I'm sure you guys have got my email address and can share that with the podcast as it goes out. So feel free to get in touch and I can link you up with that. So finally, the last question What is the one key thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation? The takeaway would be this is more exciting than daunting for whatever part you play in practice through grant making. It is not as scary as it needs to be from either a decision making prospect or from a donor prospect or for a fundraising prospect. It's about being a bit more open and reflective and continuously questioning why do we do things the way that we do? Could they be done better? Is this an option for that better? That would be my takeaway. Don't be paralyzed by perfection. Don't be scared by the prospect. Get involved and see what happens. I love that. Thank you so much, Hannah. This is, oh my gosh, this has been an incredible conversation. I think it's brought so many topics, you know, and and words that people use into such grounded reality of what this can look like and very much brought us to the ballet, so to speak. And, 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 and I think that's exactly as you say, like there's so many great models of this out there and, and it doesn't have to be daunting and you can, you can look and you can learn and you can kind of revitalize the existing way. Very, very cool. Thank you so much for your time and for your insight and and for all the the leadership you do um, in this space. It's really cool to follow along and we'll put the link to your medium in the show notes. But for listeners, Hannah has a fantastic medium where she's documenting all of the process at the National Lottery and giving recommendations and sharing some of the insights. So it's really worth checking out. Thank you. That's all we've got for today. Of course, first and foremost, a huge thank you to Hannah for her generous time and advice and for being so open to dive into these topics with us. I know, I mean, I speak on behalf of the whole team at IG that we're so passionate about this model and about understanding where best practice lies in the sector and understanding how to bring power shifting approaches into all of our work. And it was a real privilege to hear from Hannah and to learn from her and to really witness the incredible change she's making in the institution of the National Lottery. And as always, stay tuned for more exciting episodes coming soon. And in the meantime, you know where to find us on Twitter. Our hashtag is at IG underscore advisors. Our website, impactandgrowth.com. Or you can always email any one of us from the team for a virtual coffee or tea. If you're not sick of those already, you can find our email addresses on our website. And as she said, Hannah is very much open to sharing her email with all of you if you want to get in touch and learn more about her work or join her working group. So if you do, her email is hannah, which is H-A-N-N-A-H dot Patterson with one T at tnlcommunityfund.org.uk. We'll put that in the show notes too. But there you have it. So definitely do get in touch with her. You should also definitely check out her Medium blog. I really love following it. You can just Google her name and and the word Medium and it will come up. It's also at hannah.patterson. She's documenting this journey in a really incredible amount of detail and with a lot of candor. And it's just, it's really awesome to witness. So definitely check that out. And also another plug for our With and For Girls Collective episode from earlier this year. That's another great resource to look at. And finally, of course, before we sign off and bring you another guest very soon, a huge thank you again to our official season three sponsor, Siegel Family Foundation, for making this all possible. And thank you again to our fantastic new media partner, Alliance Magazine. Don't forget, you can use the code WHATDONORSWANT, all one word, for 25% off an Alliance subscription. Thanks again to all of you for listening. See you soon.